everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Historical Biography. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for this channel. Today we'll be talking to Thomas Nock about his book, The Life and Times of George McGovern, Volume 1, The Rise of a Prairie Statesman. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here, Mark. Oh, it's good to have you here. Tom, I wonder if you would begin by telling us a little about yourself. Well, I, uh, I'm a professor of history at Southern Methodist University in the Clements Department of History, and I teach courses in 20th century American politics and foreign policy. Uh, earlier, I did a lot of work on the progressive era. I wrote a book about Woodrow Wilson called To End All Wars, Woodrow Wilson and the Quest for a New World Order. And, you know, lots of uh, articles and journals and book chapters and anthologies, that sort of thing. And more recently, I uh, moved uh, forward chronologically into the 20th century into the era of, uh, of the life of George McGovern, basically, which <laughs> spans uh, the Great Depression through um, close to the end of the Vietnam War. But his career, of course, ended uh, with the advent of, uh, of the Reagan presidency. Okay. Uh, could you uh, tell us a little bit about how you came to uh, write this book? It, it sounds like it's been a very uh, consuming endeavor. Yes. Well, it's, it's a biography. I, I have a... I always respected biographers, but I have a greater respect for them now, having done this myself, because one has to become an expert on all kinds of uh, various topics and areas of the country, you know, the history of South Dakota in this case, and World War II B-24 bombers, and uh, the Eisenhower administration, Kennedy, and so on, when you're dealing with somebody who had a career like George McGovern's. And also, when you're, the, the McGovern papers... Uh, came to Princeton in the late 70s and early 80s, and it was some while before uh, they were able to get them uh, organized uh, so that uh, scholars could use them. And um, in any case, I have been working on this for some period of time, but ultimately, after they got them all organized, the McGovern papers turned out to be a collection of about 850 linear feet. Uh, and... Um, in any case, I had gotten interested in it in part because of my work on Woodrow Wilson. I'm very interested in liberal reform movements and war and the relationship between them, how quite often uh, war has ended periods of uh, domestic reform, the First World War, Second World War, and certainly the Vietnam War, killing off things like the Great Society, although there were other factors involved in that. But... Um, George McGovern is uh, got a PhD in history um, after World War II, and he studied with my own mentor, Arthur Link, who at that time uh, was at Northwestern University the first eight or ten years of his career. And then in the early 60s, Link moved to Princeton. But in any case, McGovern and Link remained friends um, all their lives. Link, uh, Link died in the late 1990s, and he arranged for... McGovern to deposit his papers at uh, Mudd Library at Princeton University, and that's what kind of intrigued me, and I also was one of those people who was in college. I was in college in the early to mid-70s, the uh, latter portion of the Vietnam War era, and I became, you know, really quite interested and impressed with George McGovern because of his stand against the Vietnam War, and I was really interested in the fact that he uh, w was a historian, um, of uh, some note, and uh, and that that sort of came out in the things he said and the things that concerned him. Um, 
And so um, I started working on this uh, in the latter part of the 90s. It also involved, I should say, a lot of oral history, not just manuscript research. I probably conducted well over 100 interviews with uh, you know, 20 or so very long ones with McGovern and family members and various senators and political uh, colleagues of his. And all of that takes uh, quite a while. And um, so uh, this volume covers his life from from the beginnings uh, up through 1968, which was a big, big turning point in, I think, American history and the history of uh, American foreign policy and certainly in the life of George McGovern. One of the things I uh, noticed in your notes is that among the people you interviewed, of course, was McGovern himself. Uh, but is this book in any way uh, an official biography, or was it simply one that you worked that you wrote in cooperation with him? Well, I think probably the latter. Uh, um, no one has undertaken a, a major study of McGovern um, uh, before mine. Um, a historian at uh, uh, SUNY Albany uh, did a very nice book on the '72 campaign, and some other people have taken uh, uh, an interest in uh, other aspects of McGovern's career. Uh, but um, um, I'm uh, the first to under, undertake a, a big biography like this. And I have to say, it does seem that you have this nice uh, point at which to do it, which is that you're able to talk to so many of you know, McGovern and so many of his contemporaries, yeah. and yet there's enough distance where you have access to so much more material. That's right. Um, but I didn't answer your question uh, specifically. You asked if this is authorized. Not really formally. It's more a matter of him cooperating, cooperating with, with me. And I think he probably saw me, in effect, as kind of a – I don't know exactly what an authorized biography is uh, uh, because there are t- you know, tons <laughs> of biographies of all kinds of presidents and more recent political figures that uh, come out um, periodically. But um, he was a very easy person to work with because he's generally very forthcoming, um, had a pretty good memory most of the time, uh, very, very objective about himself, I think, his, his uh, shortcomings as well as uh, the uh, positive, mainly positive side to his career. He was really a great humanitarian, among other things, and addressed issues of tremendous concern to uh, a lot of people about the general welfare of the the body politic. He was very famous in his day in the 60s and 70s, a senator from South Dakota, a Democrat in a Republican state. And before he got into uh, elected politics, um, he uh, got the Democratic Party reorganized in the 1950s and was elected to the House uh, for a couple of terms. And he worked in in the Kennedy administration early in his career. He ran a program called Food for Peace, which you might want to talk about later on in detail. It's a humanitarian project that did a lot of good for millions of children in third world countries. And, of course, when he was elected to the Senate in the early 60s, from the early to mid-60s onward and after, he became arguably the most insightful critic of the Vietnam War and uh, won the Democratic presidential nomination in 1972. And he really inspired a lot of people, um, not only in that campaign, but in the years uh, before that, in 68 and 1970 and so on. Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham Clinton both cut their teeth in the 72 campaign. Uh, John Kerry was a big McGovern person. Tom Daschle, uh, Eli Siegel, Gary Hart, lots of people like that. Um, 
You know, Bill Clinton was the principal speaker for the opening of the George and Eleanor McGovern Library at their alma mater, Dakota Wesleyan University, in October of 2006. And Clinton, in his remarks about McGovern, said, in the storied history of American politics, I believe that no other presidential candidate ever had such an enduring impact in defeat. And that really is quite a tribute. Maybe not exactly the one McGovern won. He probably wanted to be remembered. Well, I mean, he's, he's acknowledging <laughs> the fact that, that McGovern, you know, lost decisively in 72. But very, very, if you think about defeated, there's always a candidate who loses um, mm-hmm. in a presidential election. And it's hard to come up with another candidate who lost, who still had the kind of resonance and impact that George uh, McGovern uh, had. You don't think that way with all due respect to them, to somebody like uh, Walter Mondale or Michael Dukakis. That's, you see what I'm getting at, um, who inspired a, a generation nonetheless to pursue politics. Well, I'd like to talk a, a bit more about his political career a little bit later on. Right now, I want to go back to uh, his uh, early years, his family. Okay. Uh, you know, what was his, uh, I mean, what was his family like? What was their background? Well, he grew up in a religious household. His father was a Methodist minister. Um, he McGovern was one of uh, of uh, uh, four children. Um, his, uh, his his father was uh, kind of on the conservative side politically, and really uh, the Great Depression probably that and uh, his upbringing in a religious household those two things probably had the biggest uh, impact on his his early life. Uh, the Depression, of course, uh, you saw a lot of farmers struggling uh, throughout his, his boyhood. Uh, he was drawn to p- politics um, early on. He was interested in uh, his region's uh, distinctive politicians, uh, actually Republicans, progressive Republicans like George Norris and Robert La Follette. These were senators who had a, a real keen interest in the welfare of farmers and factory workers and small business people, that sort of thing. And uh, in high school, he got involved in, in debate. Uh, he had an inspirational American history teacher who encouraged him to go out for debate. McGovern was kind of a shy child, uh, particularly when he was in early uh, grade school. And he came out of that gradually, but he really uh, came out of it when he found his metier in, in debate. And debate, in a sense, was his introduction to politics, because as anyone who's ever done debate knows uh, you have to take different positions on different issues depending on uh, whether you draw uh, which side of the argument you you draw the affirmative or what have you and the kinds of issues that he debated were reflective of his times about war and the depression but things like uh, whether uh, the uh, federal government should nationalize the, uh, the country's railroads or whether the US and Great Britain should form a permanent alliance uh, that sort of thing, and uh, he became regionally very, very well known as a you know really, really significant uh, debater in the uh, you know kind of collegiate society of, of debaters and student government people, that kind of thing. So, you know, starting in high school, he's orienting himself more to politics. He's looking uh, forward, uh, and then he goes to college. Well, yes. Uh, he went. To, he matriculated to Dakota Wesleyan University, and that's where he really came into his own as a famous 
uh, debater. He wrote a regular column for the student newspaper, um, and he was involved in, in, in student politics, that sort of thing, and an excellent student. Uh, that's also where he met uh, his uh, his wife-to-be, Eleanor McGovern. She and her sister, Isla, were both students there. And, um, of course, as like a lot of people in the uh, late 30s and early 1940s who were privileged enough to go to college, uh, their education was interrupted by, by World War II, as was McGovern's. I wonder if you could uh, talk a bit about uh, his attitude towards the war as it was approaching, because you write a bit about uh, his engagement with the issues, uh, both in debate and in campus politics in 1940, 1941 in, in the run up to the war. Yeah, well, you know, that part of the country was uh, sort of isolationist and um McGovern was a kind of an internationalist even then, I guess, uh, because uh, he he certainly liked Franklin Roosevelt. His father and mother were nominally Republicans, but he he, he never heard either of them uh, criticize Roosevelt. Uh, and his father actually took him to Aberdeen, which is one of the larger cities in uh, South Dakota in, uh, when was it, 1936, I guess. George would have been about... Uh, uh, 12 or 14, uh, to see McGovern when he came uh, through, his, uh, pardon me, to see Roosevelt when he uh, did a swing through the state. But um, he, he he certainly, after uh, uh, Pearl Harbor, um, uh, engaged the issue of war. A lot of people, you know, were, were certainly reluctant to get into the war, uh, but they, and that's not necessarily because they were isolationists, although Roosevelt uh, probably saw the handwriting on the wall better than most. But uh, once uh, Pearl Harbor was attacked, um, I think it was in February, that is to say, you know, a couple of months after Pearl Harbor, that uh, McGovern and some of his pals uh, drove down to Lincoln, Nebraska to to sign up for um, the service. And um, he and some of his friends ended up going with the Army Air Corps because there was a lot of competition among the various branches of the service. And that particular day that they were there, uh, the Army Air Force people were offering uh, roast beef and mashed potato lunches. And so, <laughs> so that's kind of how that started. And um, uh, before the day was over, he and two or three of his friends signed uh, a letter of understanding that uh, they would join the Air Corps once they were called up. Uh, early on in the war, it took a while to um, get sufficient trainers and planes just for training pilots. And so if you were going into that area of service, uh, you weren't called up immediately the way infantry would. Uh, he, he got called, uh, I guess, uh, well over a year later. Um, it was in uh, the winter of 43, I think. Was he able to uh, finish his degree before he was called up, or did that have no, to take place? No, no, he finished. He finished uh, on the uh, GI Bill after he came back from from service as a bomber pilot. You know, that's quite a story, actually. He most people assume that McGovern was a pacifist because of his stand against the Vietnam War, but that's far from the case. Um, he was not a pacifist. He just made a good case against the futility. Uh, of the war in Vietnam, but he flew uh, a B-24 bomber, a big sluggish four-engine machine, um, on 35 missions over Germany and Austria, uh, Poland, 
and uh, these are really dangerous. Uh, you're we're really taking your life in your hands, literally, up in a plane um, over the Axis powers uh, in Europe in World War II. And uh, several of these were very, very harrowing missions. Um, uh, one particular mission, they lost two engines and they had to land on a little island in the Adriatic that didn't have a proper uh, landing strip. On the very last mission, uh, this was over Linz, Austria, they took 67 hits from flak uh, that uh, took out one of the engines, uh, the nose cap, and all of the hydraulics of the plane. And this landed, uh, ended in a crash landing back at the base, but no one injured. So he went out on 35 potentially um, fatal missions and uh, brought back his crew alive uh, every time. And he, for that one, uh, the distinguished flying cross with three oak leaf clusters. If you take a look at the backgrounds of people who ran for president, say, in the 20th century, um, none of them really uh, would have anything on George McGovern. He's right up there for a really impressive uh, military record. One of the things that impressed me when I was reading that section was not just, you know, McGovern's, uh, you know, bravery in terms of uh, uh, flying during those 35 missions, but it was also uh, his relationship with his uh, flight crew and his uh, and, and and the leadership he showed to them. I was wondering if you could elaborate a bit upon that. Well, that's interesting. Um, he had a very very cr- uh, crew of uh, of nine uh, men and uh, from all walks of life, various stations and religions and cultures, that sort of thing. And McGovern had a very calming personality for them. Even when they were under intense anti-aircraft fire, uh, he would keep them calm by having them check in um, with him as to their situation and their part of the plane and what they had to do, that sort of thing. Uh, He was self-conscious about his youth. He was only 21 going on 22 uh, and but he was a year or two older than most of his crew, and so they, you know, this is a period of life. You think back about your own life when you're in your late teens and early twenties. A difference of two or three years seems like a lot. And uh, he grew a mustache for a while. He thought that would give him a, a, a an older, more mature look about it. But he, he he got rid of that after after a while. But um, he uh, it's an, an interesting demographic about. Uh, people who served in World War II as opposed to Vietnam, the uh, average age in World War II was 26, whereas it was just 19 for guys in in Vietnam. But uh, flyers often were a good bit uh, uh, younger, as was McGovern. But he had a a great relationship with his crew. A lot of them, um, you know, obviously some of them would be Republicans as they uh, went along in life, but they always had great things to say about uh, McGovern's steadiness uh, and courage under fire. There were a couple of, uh, of incidences, about half a dozen out of the 35 uh, flights that are like something out of a movie, and his crew, by and large, um, gave him credit for, for saving everybody's life because he was so good at what he did and steady at the helm. And at the end of the war, he comes back to the United States. And as you mentioned, he uh, finishes his degree at Dakota Wesleyan. What does he do with his life then? 
Well, he, he finished up school, and um, he wasn't sure exactly what he wanted to do. His father, as I mentioned, was a um, Methodist minister, and he thought for a while that he might like to take that path, and he became a uh, he went into uh, Garrett Theological Seminary, which is near Evanston, Illinois, uh, for a while. And he and Eleanor um, uh, moved there, as did uh, Eleanor's sister, Eileen, her husband, uh, who was a graduate student in history at Northwestern, just across the way, basically, from Garrett. And um, McGovern had a, had a kind of fellowship that made him an apprentice minister. Um, and he, he just gradually came to the conclusion that this, that this path was not for him. And a couple of times he went with his brother-in-law, um, uh, Bob Pennington, to, uh, to a couple of lectures, uh, particularly lectures by a man named Ray Allen Billington, who was, whose field was American intellectual history and the history of the American frontier, and who was, by all accounts, a real stem winder of, uh, of a lecturer. And McGovern was really, really impressed, and his love of history really um, came back. And so he, uh, he's kind of like a born-again historian, and uh, <laughs> uh, Garrett to, uh, to enter the uh, program at Northwestern, where he came into contact not only with what Ray Allen and Billington, but also with uh, Arthur Link, the great Woodrow Wilson scholar, a man named Richard Leopold, who became one of the early deans of American diplomatic history, and also a man named Lefton Stavrianos, who was a Europeanist, um, who had a big impact on McGovern as well. He was the author of a uh, kind of Western Civ world history textbook, which went into, I think it was 11 editions. It stayed in print for 25 or, or 30 years. So it was a small department, but a very, very good one. And it, uh, it launched McGovern on his way into politics because he emphasized political history and um, American foreign policy in a very heady time in American history after World War II um, and the early stages of the Cold War. That was quite an environment in which to study contemporary American history. One of the points that really stood out as, as I was reading not just uh, that part of the book, but also the uh, later parts, is how it really does seem to have been an especially formative period for him intellectually, that a lot of what he was uh, reading and discussing helped shape a lot of the views that he took uh, into the 1950s and uh, tested against uh you know, ongoing events once he becomes a teacher and, and then begins to uh, look towards politics. Well, that's right. In, in, in the area of politics, for instance, Arthur Link suggested that for his dissertation, uh, McGovern write about the Colorado coal strike of 1913-1914. This is a really, really famous chapter in American labor history, and I think it remains the bloodiest, at least the second bloodiest, if not the bloodiest, uh, labor upheaval in uh, in uh, American labor history. And this was the story of uh, John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s war, sort of, uh, against uh, coal miners in the southern coal fields of Colorado and their efforts to get better working conditions, um, shorter hours, better pay, and decent living conditions. And um, in any case, when he did his research for this, and since that time, incidentally, just in the last 10 years, a couple of of major studies have come out. There's been a lot of work done on this, but uh, McGovern was the pioneer in this particular field. 
And he, he had a sense of identification with the plight of the miners because of the farmers that he knew coming up during the Great Depression who also struggled against social and economic forces beyond their control, just as these miners did. And through that and his various course readings, um, his, his, his conception of, of social politics and social conflict, uh, his politics began to, crisp, to crystallize. That is to say that sometimes often conflict in American history brought about positive change. He saw that reflected in um, the coal strike, the uh, Ludlow Massacre, and that whole saga. And uh, he never stopped reading history after that. And uh, it, it really came in handy. He also in this period did a lot of reading, kind of the first draft of writing on the Cold War, particularly with regard to the coming of the Cold War in Asia. Theodore White, the famous uh, political writer who did the series The Making of the President, 1960, for instance, and 64, and so on, uh, wrote um, a great book in that period uh, called Thunder Out of China. Um, a man named Owen Lattimore, who got the trouble in the McCarthy period, had written a book called The Situation in Asia, and he spent a lot of time in Asia um, and also John K. Fairbank, uh, who's a very, very famous academic, wrote a, a great work on, on China um, that was very critical of American foreign policy after the war because it had unfortunately sided with a corrupt warlord by the name of Chiang Kai-shek. Uh, and most people who knew anything that was going on in China, in the State Department and, and elsewhere, knew that there was no way Chiang Kai-shek was the future of China and the, the communists led by Mao inevitably were going to triumph because they were so well disciplined and that they had close relationships with, with the peasantry because of uh, what their cause was. And because also they killed a lot more Japanese invaders than uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. And so he was reading stuff like that and that drew him to Henry Wallace, who was occupied the uh, leftward realm of the Democratic Party in the late 40s and uh, had been uh, arguably the greatest Secretary of State, uh, pardon me, <laughs> Secretary of Agriculture in American history under FDR in the 30s and became his vice president during the war, but got dumped in 44 because Democrats were worried that FDR might not survive a fourth term and they were concerned about Henry Wallace's location on the political spectrum and the kinds of things that really animated him. And so Roosevelt let him go and replaced him with Harry Truman. And Wallace became a, kind of an early uh, insightful critic of, of Cold War policy, um, and uh, that attracted a lot of younger people like McGovern. And McGovern became, uh, uh, he actually attended the uh, Progressive Party uh, convention in '48. Uh, but gradually he found himself, you know, Wallace uh, did not do very well in that election. It was a, a dead heat, it seemed, between Truman and Dewey, although Truman ended up winning by three or four percent of the popular vote. And McGovern gradually found himself, you know, gravitating back toward uh, the Democratic Party. Um, at least Stevenson in particular, he really, really admired in the meanwhile, he, you know, had finished his dissertation and uh, was offered a job at Dakota Wesleyan. He taught there for about two or three years uh, before actually getting into political activity in South Dakota. Now, during that time, he, uh, you know, it was a very, uh, you know, politically very 
challenging time. You, uh, it was the Red Scare. There was a lot of concern about politics. And yet McGovern made uh, no secret of his views and his beliefs, even if they might engender controversy. That's right. Uh, it's really quite interesting. He never ran for office when he wasn't attacked, uh, red baited, particularly early on. But he had a couple of things going for him. One was his war record. I mean, no one could, although occasionally Republicans tried to um, uh, imply that he was he was lacking in patriotism. Anybody who flies 35 missions against the Nazis, like he did, um, you know, has earned their red, white, and blue stripes. I think, and I think most South Dakotans, certainly in uh, the eastern part of South Dakota, where uh, he he lived and the area he represented, uh, came to have a lot of respect for him, whether or not. Uh, they agree with his positions politically. But also, this has something to do with his personality. If you perhaps read certain positions he might take on a particular issue, it might seem a little bit uh, out of the ordinary for a middle-of-the-road uh, politician. If you heard him talk about it, though, one-on-one or in a speech, he had a, a way, a knack of speaking that made what he was saying sound like so reasonable and just the logical conclusion that any thoughtful person would come to. That was really kind of a gift, and, and he, he, he was particularly adept at explaining uh, complex issues that uh, everyday people, without talking down to people, that everyday people could understand. Also, once he was elected in 56, and he had a, a rough go with that, but uh, he was running against, uh, what, a three-term incumbent, um, and uh, he still prevailed over him. That guy, uh, Lovery was his name, attempted to make an issue of McGovern's advocacy of um, the membership of the People's Republic of China in the UN and tried to cast aspersions on his patriotism. And it turned out that this guy had not served in the service um, when he possibly could have. But in any case, a lot of Republicans who veterans who respected McGovern, came to his aid in this, and he won handily. And then he became a very, a very, very astute student of, uh, of, of agriculture and represented the state's interests quite effectively. And, of course, agriculture was number one enterprise in South Dakota. And because he was so good at that, and he was young and articulate, and, and he impressed people, um, when he took critical stances, say, against Eisenhower's foreign policy in his first term in Congress. That didn't matter so much to them, to his constituents, because he did such a good job otherwise. And um, and they paid attention to what he said there, and a lot of people, you know, um, came to support him. Uh, nonetheless, farmers remained. You know, in the years ahead, McGovern became one of the leading experts on agriculture in the United States. And uh, farmers in South Dakota became a, a, a mainstay uh, in his political success. In even, say, in 1968, uh, when uh, the Vietnam War was uh, at a kind of crescendo, uh, about 66% of the farmers of South Dakota supported McGovern. That's a quite impressive number. That is. And, and, and those things explain um, how it was uh, he was successful in a state uh, like South Dakota. The other thing also, when you talk about 1968, uh, where this book comes to a, a kind of climax, 
I think probably by that point, a majority of South Dakotans had come to agree with McGovern on Vietnam, um, and partly so because up to that point, the Vietnam War had been presided over by a Democratic administration. And they thought McGovern was pretty brave to take on his own president, so to speak. That is to say, Wyndon Johnson. And um, so that explains part of it for, for that period. Of course, in the latter uh, stages, um, in uh, 71 and 72 with Richard Nixon, who was a Republican, and we're still in the war, and McGovern is still, of course, roundly opposed to that war. Then that partisan element uh, that quality of the of the whole political issue of Vietnam uh, becomes uh, it's not quite the asset for McGovern that it gradually became um, in his uh, earlier period in the Senate that first full term when he was elected in '62 to the time of his reelection in 1968. One of the uh, points that you made that I, I thought was interesting was you, you talk about his. Uh, interpersonal skills in terms of interacting with voters. And I, and I was thinking that I, I think that the size of the South Dakota electorate, uh, you know, was a factor there. Cause as you mentioned, I, I think it was with the, uh, 60 rate, 1960 race, the 1962 mm-hmm. race that it was still, it was possible for him to have shaken hands with every voter in South Dakota. Yes. Uh, he certainly, I'm sure I have no doubt that he had by <laughs> 1968 because, you know, he ran for election. Uh, I think that was his fifth time running for election. He ran in 56, and in 58, successfully for the House, and then in 1960, he ran for the Senate against a very powerful conservative Republican incumbent, Carl Munt, uh, and lost. And then in 62, he ran and won, and of course won again in 1968. But, you know, the 1960 race is very interesting. Um, the, it was the biggest uh, turnout, turnout in the history of uh, South Dakota, as it was in a lot of states in 1960, because both major parties were putting out fresh horses, John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And uh, South Dakota was one of those senatorial races that got national attention because Munt was a famous incumbent, and here, with this, here was this young whippersnapper, George McGovern, uh, challenging him. It's interesting that... Uh, I think it was about a little over 300,000 votes cast in South Dakota in 1960. And Nixon won South Dakota by 50,000 votes. They really liked Nixon. And, you know, he roundly defeated JFK. However, McGovern came within 15,000 votes, 15, votes of capsizing months. So a lot of people who voted for Nixon for president uh, split their ticket and voted for McGovern, although not quite enough. Um, but, um, so that's an interesting uh, element of the uh, the impact of his personality uh, as well as his skills uh, politically. And of course, not another. To, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Another commonality, though, that that I, I noticed uh, in the book, which was that the degree to which uh, both in his uh, career in the House and then uh, the time that you described the Senate is the degree to which he was in a point of opposition against uh, the presidency in a way that really that his constituents agreed with. And here I'm thinking primarily about the what, what seems to be the, the person who seems to be the great villain in South Dakota in the 1950s, which was Ezra Taft Benson. Yes. Yeah. Well, that was because um, Benson was a very conservative secretary of agriculture who was very much against um, uh, uh 
subsidies to, to agriculture uh, to uh, bring prices, uh, what the income of, of farmers would be, uh, to bring it in line with uh, the income of city folks, parity. And um, what, uh, what Benson came up with was something called the soil bank, uh, where you'd set aside uh, land, uh, you wouldn't put crops in in a particular uh, uh, acreage, which really favored larger uh, agricultural uh, enterprises, including corporate agriculture. And McGovern, in his very first term, uh, first few months in office, um, submitted an amendment to a very controversial farm bill uh, that would have provided 90% parity payments, that is to say, a subsidy from the federal government to bring uh, farmers' uh, income up to 90% of parity. And parity was a particular, you choose a particularly good year uh, that was a reasonable, uh, decent income for farmers, and you try to get within 90% of that uh, with a combination of what the market uh, force brought you for the commodity uh, and then a subsidy. And it varied from wheat to corn to rye to cotton and what have you. It's really kind of complicated. But in any case, he proposed this amendment that failed, but it failed by only four votes. And um, uh, he got a lot of attention in the agricultural press, and the people in South Dakota were very impressed that their first-term congressman uh, did this. But um, in a sense, in 1956 and 1958 and 1960, McGovern ran against Ezra Taft Benson because <laughs> he came to be so hated uh, among uh uh, farmers. Uh, he was the one area that uh, of, of Eisenhower's uh, policy that most farmers who otherwise liked Eisenhower, they really resented, the uh, majority of them did, uh, Ezra Taft Benson's policies. And the fact that Eisenhower had reneged on a promise that he made during the, uh, the 52 campaign, actually in South Dakota, uh, that he would support uh, this 90% parity program that uh, the Democratic Party had always supported from the days of uh, you know, the, the New Deal, and Harry Truman certainly did too. And uh, so he is, has this prominent position. He has this uh, you know, very close race against uh, Karl Mundt, and uh, then he's a man without a job. Well, kind of without a job. Uh, the 19, his defeat in 1960 actually contained uh, a great opportunity. He had impressed John F. Kennedy. Kennedy and Nixon, because the race was so uh, contested in 1960, uh, Nixon and Kennedy both went to South Dakota a couple of times. It was only four electoral votes. It wasn't California or Illinois or New York, but every electoral vote counted. And uh, Kennedy was very impressed. With Nixon, and so was Bobby, who traveled with uh, with uh, Jack a lot. And when they left uh, one trip in, in October, uh, because uh, McGovern was so loyal to the ticket, uh, they feared uh, Kennedy made the remark to Bobby. He said, "I'm a, I, I worry that we cost that good man uh, a Senate seat, Bobby." And um, and he knew McGovern from uh, they worked together on labor legislation and agricultural legislation in the late fifties and. Kennedy learned a lot from McGovern about agriculture, and he coached him on the kinds of things that he should stress in the speeches that he made in South Dakota. Make a long story short, uh, Kennedy uh, wanted to bring and did bring McGovern into his administration as a special assistant to the president and director of Food for Peace. 
And Food for Peace was a, a really, really great opportunity for McGovern to, to show what he could do. This was a program that actually came about in the early 50s under Eisenhower to alleviate the burden of America's huge grain surpluses by distributing them ab- abroad. Uh, the Eisenhower administration was kind of clumsy and ham-handed about this, and critics called it a dumping program. Um, when McGovern took the program over, he was a lot more sensitive to the particular needs of recipient countries, and he engineered a vast expansion of the program and turned it into a, a kind of a, a dynamic tool of foreign policy. For two years, he traveled constantly overseeing allotments of millions of tons of surplus American food and fiber that would be used, for example, as what he called self-help capital to fuel labor-intensive economic development projects. And in 20 underdevelopment countries, Food for Peace provided partial wage payments for workers engaged in kind of um, um, the equivalent of WPA projects, land clearance and irrigation projects and construction of dams and roads and schools and that sort of thing. In a lot of third world countries, as much as half, if not more, of one's income might go toward procuring food. And this Food for Wages program um, provided uh, that kind of sustenance for upwards of 700,000 workers, not just the workers, but also their, their families. Um, and for McGovern, this was the way to fight the Cold War by launching these kinds of projects while also improving the nutritional health of the workers uh, and their families. But the thing that was really dearest to his heart was the overseas school lunch program, which he worked tirelessly to revitalize in countries like South Korea and South Vietnam, Mexico, Brazil, the Philippines, uh, India especially, and uh, I guess about uh, at least a dozen other countries. And among other things, his dedication to this school lunch program resulted in dramatic improvements in school attendance, often like, you know, 30 and 40 percent, and in the health of literally tens of millions of malnourished children in every part of the globe. And and this also engendered a lot of goodwill for the U.S. And so I argue that McGovern had superintended arguably the single greatest humanitarian achievement of the Kennedy-Johnson era, and of course the experience had a lasting impact on his thinking about the ways that big, powerful countries like the U.S. might figure in the life of of smaller, weaker countries. That this food for peace was a constructive instrument of foreign policy. And he'd he'd relate to his constituency this way. He'd talk about the interrelatedness between uh, education, agriculture, and foreign policy in the Cold War. And this this was the right way to reckon with uh, and prevail over the Soviets. It really does seem to have been a position uh, that was tailor-made for him, and it also really is I- intriguing in the sense of it's the one it's the one time in his career where he's really able to take a lot of his ideas and put them into action as an executive. That's right. As opposed to simply advocating them and shaping laws as a legislator. Yeah, and he also used it in an interesting way politically. One of the things he liked to tell audiences, he did a lot of PR work for it all over the country, and he got great press for it. But it'd say something like this. He would point out that here in the United States, um, I think it was about 8% of the population of the, of the U.S. Um, uh, worked in agriculture. 
And they, that R8% was five times more productive than their counterparts in Russia who made up nearly half of the Soviet Union's labor force. In other words, R8% five times more productive than half the Soviet population. And that's really, really pretty impressive. And that's how he'd make that case uh, for Food for Peace's being a better way to fight the Cold War. And then he'd end it by, uh, he'd quote Walt Rostow, who once made the remark, Marx was a city boy. <laughs> to explain this, this, that's really an interesting failure of the Soviet Union. And if you want to look at, you know, all kinds of factors in the collapse of the Soviet Union, that is definitely one of them. The Soviets never could produce good consumer goods, and they had a hard time feeding themselves, their own people. And food was as important as any other factor that way uh, for us in the Cold War, and it was probably second only to, uh, you know, our war arsenal in World War II, and Henry Wallace was responsible for amassing the kinds of foodstuffs that were essential to uh, victory in World War II. And McGovern knew those things, and he, he knew how to put them across effectively. And yet, uh, for all the good that he was doing this position, he still thinks about the Senate. Uh, how did he get uh, involved in, in the Senate race in 1962? Well, he always, it, 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 it just, it was more important to him. He just wanted to be a senator, and uh, he talked to Kennedy about it, and Kennedy gave him his blessings, and um, he ran uh, against a, name, a guy named Joe Bottom, and, uh, and won. It was very close, um, again, in the neighborhood of 300,000 votes, uh, and he won by, there was a recount, and he won by 597 votes. Um, and so he was in the Senate, but he didn't take long to make his presence known. Um, he introduced some really interesting legislation. He, you know, in this period when he entered the Senate, it's between the, uh, happy conclusion to the missile crisis and a year or so before the big buildup in, in Vietnam. And he introduced, he, he thought that there was a possibility of curbing the, nuclear arms race and trimming down the size of of our military industrial uh, complex. And one of the things it proposed was a $5 billion cut in defense appropriations, um, which uh, were about uh, $54 billion. That was half of the federal budget. And uh, he pointed out that the two superpowers together had amassed somewhere between 40 to 60 billion tons of TNT in their stockpiles, which was enough to kill virtually everything on the face of the earth many, many times over. And so what what possible advantage would accrue from spending more billions of dollars on this kind of overkill capacity? And he argued it was time to consider national security needs alongside their implications for American society. And he outlined uh, all the things you could do with that $5 billion savings. And you could build a school in every one of the country's 3,000 counties and 500 hospitals and establish um, 100,000 federal scholarships worth $5,000 each and still have enough over, left over to reduce the budget uh, by a billion dollars. So those were the kinds of things that he was uh, interested in. Did his position uh, alienate uh, 
uh, John Kennedy? Uh, did jeopardize his relation, uh, his friendship with him? No, no. Uh, his his first speech, uh, his maiden speech, was about it's called our Castro fixation um, versus the Alliance for Progress, which was Kennedy's uh, kind of. Uh, Marshall Plan for Latin America, rather delayed. Uh, Latin America would have liked some sort of Marshall Plan in the immediate post-war uh, World War II period and was never forthcoming. But in any case, he was not necessarily critical of the Kennedy administration in Korea, but he thought that the problem, you know, Latin America's problems uh, were not caused by Fidel Castro or Khrushchev. Uh, the problems were the system. Uh, throughout Latin America that we supported, which was uh, military governments and oligarchies and uh, extreme poverty on the part of you know most uh, of the uh, populace. And uh, here, this gets him around to advocating strongly things like more food for peace programs as well as um, the Alliance for Progress, um, where he was actually fairly openly critical of, Vietnam, of uh, Kennedy was in Vietnam. Um, one speech, he was talking about this uh, $55 billion budget uh, for defense. Uh, was the first time he ever talked about Vietnam. He referred to the current dilemma in Vietnam as a clear demonstration of the limitations of military power. And he talked about this ragged band of illiterate guerrillas fighting with homemade weapons against this tyrannical government in Saigon that existed only because the U.S. created it and financed it. And he said President Kennedy's policy, alas, is scarcely one of victory or even stalemate. Rather, it's a policy of moral debacle and political defeat. And he, he ended this, which was really one of the very earliest trenching commentaries on Vietnam by anyone in Congress. He ended it with, with a prophetic warning, he said, the failure in Vietnam will not remain confined to Vietnam. The trap we have fallen into there will haunt us in every corner of this revolutionary globe if we do not properly appraise its lessons and rely less on armaments and more on the economic, political, and moral sources of our strength. That's pretty powerful. Very... That's Vietnam while, you know, John F. Kennedy, that's September of... Uh, of uh, 1963. And within a couple of months, it's no longer a criticism of Kennedy's Vietnam policy. It's a criticism of Lyndon Johnson's Vietnam policy. That's right. That's right. I, I was wondering if you could speak a bit to uh, his relationship with Lyndon Johnson, because that is, you know, a, 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 a topic that, you know, runs through the remainder of, of the volume. Uh, did, did he have the same relationship with uh, LBJ? No, probably of all the presidents he worked with or served under, uh, he had his, the closest relationship with JFK. And JFK and Bobby also took a, a – this is no gloss on my part. They took a real interest in him personally, and they they did things to help him. They just took a liking to him, and they respected him tremendously. And that's when both JFK and RFK were killed, particularly RFK just five years later. That really just uh, – that took everybody down, and, and uh, McGovern grieved deeply uh, over those losses. But they really, really uh, worked closely with him, and he, he liked them a, a great deal. The case of Johnson, they kind of liked each other from the very early times. Um, and I must say that of, of all the presidents since FDR, McGovern knew this certainly, uh, that 
LBJ was really the authentic heir to uh, to the tradition of FDR and the and the New Deal, and um, there were he, there were no stronger stauncher supporters of Lyndon Johnson when it came to things like the Great Society, his Medicare program, uh, federal aid to, to education and civil rights legislation. No stronger advocate uh, of Johnson's work than George McGovern. But of course, uh, Vietnam ended up changing that. You know, in '64, when Johnson's running against Goldwater, um, you had the famous Gulf of Tonkin incident that probably never occurred, but Johnson seized on it, um, in part because Goldwater was a real hawk on Vietnam and was attacking him for not uh, taking due uh, notice of Vietnam, which was hardly the case. But in any event, Johnson seized upon this alleged incident of PT boats attacking a couple of American destroyers in August of 64 to get from Congress the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, which was an open-ended authorization for military action against North Vietnam. And um, that went through the House unanimously, and only two people in the Senate voted against it. McGovern voted for it uh, with misgivings, uh, and he went to regret the vote because, of course, just a couple of months after Johnson was inaugurated, after huge landslide victory, he was no longer the peace con uh, candidate that he had portrayed himself as in order to defeat Goldwater. And um, McGovern, as early as March 1965, was invited on CBS News for a special program on Vietnam. He was talking about denouncing the idea of escalation and massive bombing is worse than futile and predicting a staggering loss of life out of all proportion to the stakes involved. Um, and he said it'd be a lot better for politicians to take some political risks for a negotiated settlement than for us to risk a course that might cost the lives of, of thousands of our, or hundreds of thousands, possibly, of our own citizens. Um, he, initially, he wasn't unsympathetic. He, he, he had a couple meetings with Johnson. Uh, one, uh, when he endeavored to refute this uh, notion that Johnson had Ho Chi Minh, the leader of North Vietnam was a surrogate for Red China, and McGovern tried to explain the fact that Vietnam and China had been enemies for th for a thousand years, and that Ho really, first and foremost, was a nationalist who might serve as a barrier against communist Chinese expansion. and And Johnson didn't have any use for that. He said he didn't have time to be sitting around this desk uh, reading history books, and uh, so <laughs> that didn't go too far. Um, but um, some of the things that McGovern said about, I mean, he, he, he made such a persuasive case uh, publicly on the floor of the Senate, along with maybe, oh, seven or eight in the early years, 65 and 66, about this. He explained things. I'll, I'll read you a portion of some of his comments. He's uh, talking about the bombing, uh, rolling thunder that began in March of 65. He said that the guerrillas in the South, you know, they're part of the people and terrain, and in many cases they're farmers by day and fighters by night. And to bomb them was to bomb the children and the women and the villagers and peasants with whom they intermingled. To destroy their crops is to destroy the countryside on which the general population depended. And so to escalate the war would only strengthen the guerrillas' cause in the eyes of South Vietnamese and destroy the moral influence of the U.S. And he talked about the waste and resources. He says, he said, Did, does it make sense to use a $2 million plane 
carrying a $10,000 bomb load to knock out a grass hut or a rope bridge that'll be repaired by nightfall. And then, you know, on the ground from the middle of 65 onwards, we were increasing our troop levels by 100,000 a year through 1967 into 68, uh, while more than twice that number of Vietnamese came of draft age annually, and that was a perfect formula for stalemate. And of course, between March 65 and the end of just 67, before you even get to 1968, B-52s dropped on Vietnam a million and a half tons of bombs, a half million on the north, a million on the south, exceeding the combined tonnage of bombs dropped by all the belligerents in World War II. By the time you get the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, by that point, you know, most of North Vietnam's infrastructure was in ruins. Uh, Napalm, Agent Orange had destroyed about half of all South Vietnam's forests. Um, By the end of 67, 16,000 American soldiers had been killed and over 60,000 wounded, and another 14,000 GIs would be killed in 68. That was the single worst year for us. And Vietnamese deaths numbered in the hundreds of thousands. And we were spending, to accomplish all that, spending about $2 billion a month, which was a sum exceeding the war on poverty's budget for all of 1966. And still the enemy's will to carry on the struggle seemed undiminished. And here at home, uh, the U.S. was in turmoil uh, on a scale. You'd have to go back to the Civil War to, to find something like it. And by that point, McGovern really had emerged as as the leading critic of the war within the liberal establishment, anyhow, that that conceived the war. His criticisms of the air war strike me as especially poignant, given that his own experiences in World War II as a bomber pilot. And I was thinking about the uh, the, um, that section in, in, in the chapter on the war where he accidentally bombed a farmhouse. Oh, and yeah. how that stayed with him. And, and I, I can see how a lot of his uh, critiques and analysis of the bombing campaign in Vietnam draw back upon that very personal experience of having been in that situation, of being the bomber, having thought about what it means to be doing something that's like that. That's a very insightful observation, really, Mark. Uh, no, that's true. Uh, you know, bomber pilots, all bomber pilots, whether it's Vietnam or World War Two. They're at a great remove. They can't see the destruction that they're that, that they're causing, or the people who are getting you know killed uh, by their bombs. And they, they had a, a situation returning on a flight after you know bombing marshalling yards or something like that, where they had a bomb stuck in in the racks. And that's a very dangerous situation in World War II uh, bombers because they were really dangerous crafts. And what they wanted to do was. Um, uh, drop it, you know, into the ocean, which you you often did. Uh, if you if you didn't get to drop all your bombs, you just did not want to land with those kinds of bombs. And they're struggling with it, and they're still um, over land. And it accidentally it was let loose, and they could see that it went down and just blew the heck out of a, a farmhouse. And McGovern thought about, you know, his friends back in South Dakota. The other thing was that he took in his career several trips to Vietnam. Um, it actually, you know, worked on getting uh, food for peace resources to Vietnam to uh, help uh, refugees from flooding in South Vietnam. 
But in November of 65, he spent uh, a few days in Vietnam, and he visited hospitals uh, where RGIs were, and also hospitals where wounded uh, South Vietnamese civilians were. And this really, really sickened him. Um, and he had, a, he had an audience with Westmoreland for an hour or so. He liked Westmoreland very much personally, had a lot of respect for him, but Westmoreland was, you know, perpetrating a, a kind of a conventional war, uh, warfare he was conducting uh, in a very unconventional uh, situation. And so he was always mindful of that because um, he knew what, the, what this was doing. So by 1968, McGovern is this very visible critic of the war within the Democratic Party, within the president's own party. I was wondering if you could speak a bit about his role in the 1968 uh, presidential primaries and sure. how he went from how he emerged in the convention itself as a uh, as a uh, possible uh, nominee. Yeah, well, 1968 is a, some people say it's one of the worst years in U.S. history. It opened in January, like January of 68, with the famous Tet Offensive. Uh, this came on the heels of uh, Johnson bringing Westmoreland home late in 67 to talk about the progress in the war and that the, you know, there was light at the end of the tunnel, that sort of thing. And Tet was a multi-pronged offensive throughout Vietnam in all the provincial, almost all of the provincial provincial uh, capitals, uh, um, the National Liberation Front guerrillas, along with regular troops from North Vietnam. And the mere fact that they could undertake this uh, was a blow to the cause in general. Um, and it helped to undermine uh, Johnson's uh, political situation in early 68. But before that, you had Eugene McCarthy uh, of Minnesota and then Bobby Kennedy challenging Johnson's Authority. Uh, McCarthy entered the New Hampshire primary in uh, February, late February of uh, 68. He lost, but he got 42% of the vote, and that was tantamount to a defeat to an incumbent president. Then Bobby Kennedy got into the mix, and um, the combination of the impact of Tet. Tet, what Tet did politically was to cause, for the first time, a majority of Americans to see the war as a mistake and wanting to get out one way or the other. And the combination of the impact of Tet and McCarthy and Kennedy's entry into the primaries um, brought about Johnson's uh, decision to uh, announce that he was not going to be a candidate for re-election in 68. Then just four days after that, Martin Luther King was assassinated. And then in June, in early June, Bobby Kennedy on the night he won the California primary over McCarthy, he was assassinated. And he and McGovern were very, very close at this point. Uh, McGovern made a very famous speech in April of 67 called The Lessons of Vietnam, which Kennedy, when he was running in the primaries in 68, said was the most powerful and most influential of all the speeches he ever heard on Vietnam. Well, when Kennedy was killed, um, Kennedy's people were bereft, and there was a kind of um, movement to uh, sort of draft uh, McGovern uh, into uh, uh, the primary race, and he decided to do this um, in part to help to secure in the party's platform a plank calling for a bombing hole in Vietnam and the start of serious negotiations to end the war. 
and that's something, of course, that the, the McCarthy people wanted too. Um, but what happened at the convention was uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was vice president, was basically, you know, the administration's man and had had, even though I don't think his heart was fully in it, he was one of the administration's point men uh, pressing uh, to stay the course in Vietnam. And during the Democratic convention on the second day, there was a nationally televised debate uh, about Vietnam, basically, between McGovern uh, Eugene McCarthy and Hubert Humphrey. And McCarthy was in a crabby mood and came across that way. And Humphrey found himself defending Johnson. And McGovern basically creamed both of them uh, in making a case against pursuing the war this way and trying to get out um, uh, along the lines of the things I was talking about earlier. And of all the Democrats, only McGovern emerged from Chicago with an enhanced reputation. Humphrey won the nomination, but, and, and this is one of the connections with our politics today, and I think the whole story of Vietnam is, with regard, in many ways anyhow, with regard to uh, the issue of the Middle East these days. But Humphrey had not won a single primary, but he copped the nomination because two-thirds of the delegates were chosen by tightly controlled state organizations, and often in secret. And afterward, um, many Democrats felt that Humphrey's nomination and the demise of the peace plank, which Humphrey actually supported, but which uh, Lyndon Johnson from his ranch in Texas uh, crushed, um, the combination of those two factors uh, caused a lot of Democrats to think that um, uh, there was a process underway that flaunted the very name of their party, and they want it changed. And that's where you get the beginnings of a uh, greater number of primaries and the advent of, of caucuses actually under the aegis of George McGovern's commission that the Democrats put together in the wake of the disaster of 1968. Um, to make a long story short, as I say, of all the Democrats, McGovern emerged from Chicago with an enhanced reputation, and he was declared kind of a, uh, an overnight star by major publications. Time magazine said he was one of the three most likely prospects for the party's nomination in 72, and also by that point probably a majority of, as I said before, South Dakotans had come to agree with him on the war. And it was a tough re-election bid for him in 68, but... 90% of the Democrats of South Dakota and 40% of the state's Republicans voted for McGovern, and he, he won by 58% of, of the vote. It was really a big victory for him. Um, but, so he finishes um, the year with this very uh, enhanced stature, uh, both you know in his own home state, having won a very dramatic victory, and also he is now a very – he's one of the leading, if not uh, the leading – anti-war uh, Democrat facing uh, it with Republicans about to take Well, and also he's not one of just 10 or 12. He's probably a good 40%. If you look at the vote on this compromise plank that went down, uh, went down 40% to 60%. And so the Democratic Party was a 60-40 a party at that time. And that's why you had, uh, you know, the, the uh, reforms to increase the number of uh, primaries so that, uh, well, today, you know, you hear a lot of complaints about the situation today, uh, or we used to anyhow, but it's really more democratic um, than it had ever been. And that democratic element, element where actually, you know, voters themselves, through 
more primaries basically uh, choose who party nominees are. That was not the case until you get up to 1972 and uh, 76 and so on, and the Republicans were maybe one electoral cycle behind the Democrats in um, adopting that that approach. But I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, it sounds like a, a story for volume two, which, uh, you know, leads me naturally to the question, how's it coming along? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But th- I think the one thing uh, that, that that one gets out of uh, this portion of the study is is George McGovern's legacy with regard to uh, foreign policy. In his second term, he presided over these reforms in the process of selecting delegates, and he made Americans aware of the fact that there was hunger in their midst, and he was able to push through the most significant expansion of food stamps, for instance, ever undertaken, quadrupling its, its scope. But I think his most important legacy uh, for his whole career had already been established, um, and that was his great priority to get the country out of Vietnam and help Americans figure out uh, how they how they got there. Um, he right before he took office, or right just the December before he began his second term, he um, he gave the plenary address at the American Historical Association convention in New York, and he said, in part, as a practicing politician, increasingly grateful for his own historical education. This is him speaking. He believed that the quest for a more peaceful international community is the most crucial task of our age. And he said it, it was his conviction that the only potential gain that could come of Vietnam was the humility and wisdom that may guide us toward a more rational view of our future role in the international community. Vietnam should have taught us a new respect for caution and restraint in the exercise of military power abroad. And the real issue, he said, is whether the United States shall continue to intervene unilaterally in the affairs of other states as we have done during the 1960s, or will we seek to move away from this go-it-alone approach toward a greater measure of international cooperation based on a respect for the world's diversity? Now, he couldn't have guessed it, but I think he put his finger on the core problem of American foreign policy that would endure into the 21st century. And I think that's the real relevance and legacy of George McGovern. And it's, it's, it's a, a legacy to this current campaign as well. In your second volume, will be, you be re, uh, returning to that um the subject of Vietnam. Well, yes. You know, well, not, not just the Vietnam. I was thinking more, more of that, that, that overall uh, analysis of foreign policy, not just when he was a senator, but, but in his years after the Senate, because McGovern uh, you know, only passed away just a few years ago. He was witness to uh, not just the end of Vietnam, but uh, Grenada, uh, the Gulf War, Somalia, right up to Afghanistan and Iraq. That's right. That's right. And, but that's probably where I say um, – that's that's where his greatest legacy lies because of the warnings about what a terrible mistake Vietnam was that we're fighting there for no good reason and actually making things worse uh, than they were and squandering incalculable resources that could have been used to address essential needs at home. And so you're right. There we have an analogy, analogy, analogy not just with um, you know Richard Nixon's Vietnam. Uh, and after that, but after McGovern is sort of out of politics, although he always, you know, 
he made the rounds um, on TV talk shows and that sort of thing. But, you know, he very much opposed uh, the second Gulf War that began in 2003. Um, actually, just as Bernie Sanders and Barack Obama did. Um, and uh, was always concerned about um, our allocation of resources, of spending all these resources on something like that war in the Gulf uh, when we need to do stuff at home in our cities and expand opportunities for higher education and maybe think about building a, a national light rail transportation system and try in, in, in the hope of trying to reverse um, global warming and things like like that. All of those are part of the overall legacy, and there are just a lot of reasons why I think all Democrats today should appreciate and respect George McGovern. Well, Tom, we've taken a lot of your time, but before we go, uh, I want to go back to that uh, one uh, unanswered question. How, how is Volume 2 coming along? Oh, well, um, I'm hoping to have it out in, in the next electoral cycle. I have uh, <laughs> finished virtually all the research. I had um, done most of it all at once, over not all at once, over a period of time, but um, I found myself realizing that I had done uh, lots of re reviews and research for uh, a, a two-volume work, basically. And what it will cover is um, the period of Richard Nixon's Vietnam, um, the Reform Commission, uh, McGovern's work for uh, uh, at home for domestic pr programs to alleviate hunger, to um, provide better jobs and, uh, and education for Americans, uh, and, of course, the 1972 campaign. That will be the major uh, set piece. And then a chapter, perhaps two, but no more than that after 72 is the post postscriptive part of the story. He, of course, with a lot of other major classic liberal senators, went down in 1980 in the, uh, the, the Reagan uh, landslide. And yet he uh, ran for the presidency one more time. Yes, in 1984, he pursued the nomination and he got tremendous press. Um, that was um, um, really uh, an impressive uh, effort on his part. Um, and that was the year, of course, of uh, Walter Mondale's. who was a very creditable candidate, Walter Mondale's uh, campaign against Reagan in 1984. Probably another impossible uh, situation uh, mm -hmm. running against Reagan. It's a different time, of course, but it was roughly analogous to trying to unseat Nixon. In 1972, when Nixon by 72 had brought home 95% of the troops <laughs> that were there when he came into office in uh, 1969, although we continued to continue to bomb uh, the heck out of Vietnam, uh, bringing the troop levels from over half a million down to about 30 or 40,000 by the summer of 72 was what most Americans were concerned about. And of course, earlier in 72, Nixon had made his historic trip to the People's Republic of China, began the opening to China, which resulted also in the beginnings of detente with the Soviets. Um, probably it wouldn't have mattered who the Democrats nominated in 72, Muskie, Humphrey. Uh, they all would have uh, gone down, I think, that year. Well, I, for one, am definitely looking forward to reading it, and I hope that when it comes out, we can have you uh, back on the show. Great. Well, thank you, Mark, um, very much. This has been a lot of fun. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of uh, New Books Network and our listeners, uh, thanks for being on the show, and uh, have a wonderful day. <laughs>